Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Uh, For those of you who snuck in a little bit late, uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist. And more importantly than that, in order to understand that joke, I ran like 10 steps to get this stinking jacket on, and I came back and I felt like I ran three miles. So um, whew, I think we're good now. Um, we are, uh, we're continuing on in our series called Behold God With Us. Um, and uh, we're going to have this morning, obviously, and then uh, on Tuesday night, December 24th, also known as Christmas Eve, we have two services. One's at 5 o'clock and one's at 6.30. And we're going to wrap this, uh, this whole thing up, this whole Behold uh, series up um, uh, on, on that night. And I, I'll just say, if you are planning on coming to one of our two services, or you're like waffling between like, well, I don't know if I want to go to the five o'clock or the 630 or like which one that I want to go to, let me encourage you to go to the 630 if you don't care which one you're going to. We have a lot of people coming to the five or a lot of interest been expressed to the five. And so if you don't care, I'm not asking anyone to change your plans or anything like that. But if you're like, man, I don't know, whatever I feel like, Go to the 6.30 for us. It'll be more comfortable for you as well as us. Um, but uh, so that's in, that's in two nights, and we're excited to, uh, to finish up. And actually this morning, we get one more opportunity to look at some Old Testament prophecy um, and how that really uh, shaped the promises that God made for humanity in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. So we're actually going to be in the book of Hosea today. So it's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. You can go to that now. But before we do that, before we, uh, we get there, I want to share with you my greatest phobia. Um, and the greatest phobia before coming on stage completely and totally winded. My other phobia now. Uh, and this phobia, it actually stretches back all the way to high school. And I don't remember ever having this phobia uh, pre-high school or anything like that. Um, but when I got to high school, um, I started playing water polo because I got cut from the soccer team. Um, that's how most water polo players are born. Um, just kidding. <laughs> um, that's how this one was born, though. Um, and so I cut from the soccer team, so I started playing water polo. And uh, actually, my senior year on varsity, they do two-a-day workouts. And so we would go for our conditioning from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., uh, five days a week in the mornings. Um, and we would do a whole lot of swimming. And then uh, from... To like 2.20 to like 4 o'clock or 4.30 or something like that, um, we would do our actual practice. We were in the pool for about three hours a day or so. Um, now, this phobia started happening because I had a coach who, if you were one second late being into the pool, right, because that's you, when practice starts, you are in the pool, not you are casually strolling onto the pool deck or anything like that. You are in the pool when practice starts because practice is starting. If you are one second late, if anybody on the team is one second late, the entire, the entire team was going to have to swim 1,000 yards or 40 laps, uh, for those who don't speak uh, swimming, uh, 40 laps of butterfly, the entire team, right? He was not a kind coach. Um, we had, we had sh- strong shoulders, shoulder pads not included. Um, there's shoulder pads in here. It's really fun. Um, but, uh, 
But so we would have to swim for a thousand yards butterfly, which was miserable. And then if he was really upset, so he would say a thousand yards butterfly and you have 30 seconds to get across the pool and however much time you have left, you can take a deep breath and then go back and do another one. So you had to swim 25 yards on the 30 seconds butterfly. And then if he was really upset, he would do it on the 25. And then if he was really upset, he'd just say swim until you pass out, right? Like all good coaches. So I have a deep seated fear towards being tardy, deep-seated fear. And it started in water polo because of the fact that if I was late, my entire team was not only gonna have to swim a thousand yards butterfly, but they were also gonna fight me later, right? Like a deep-seated fear. And so um, one of the nice things about, about my job is I get some flexibility and I actually get Fridays off because Sunday's a workday. So my weekend really is Friday, Saturday, not Saturday, Sunday. And so one of the cool things about that is that means I get to pick up the boys from school on most Fridays. Sarah does every other day of the week, but then I get the opportunity to go pick up the boys on most Fridays. Now for me, I leave, I would rather leave 45 minutes early, sit in the parking lot and just wait until the boys come out just, just to make sure that I'm not late. Any other weirdos like me in here, right? Yeah, you guys are like, nope, I'll go, I'll park and I will just scan Facebook for 10 minutes on my phone until I can walk in, right? Like that's, that, that is me and it's because of that fear. But you add your kids to that fear and it, and it becomes even greater because you know that if you are even 10 minutes late to picking up your kid, even if your kid is the last one at pickup and, and, and the line is still moving but you are the last car in the pickup line, and your kid is sitting there by himself, even for like five seconds, they're just gonna think to themselves, I guess I'm an orphan now. <laughs> like you know it's gonna happen. Like you know at some point that thought is gonna cross their mind. They're like, you know what, that's it. Mom and dad don't love me. Um, I guess I can go live in the cafeteria. At least I know they have milk, right? Like that's, that's gonna, that's gonna walk through their heads at some point. And so for me, I would much rather be half an hour early. I ask my wife every single time I have to pick up the kids, what time do I have to pick up the kids? What time do I, she's like, it hasn't changed, dummy. Like it's the same time every single time you go pick up the kids. Um, but it is a deeply seated fear for me because, be, because I don't want my kids to ever assume that a promise that Sarah and I have made to them is not going to come to fruition, is not going to become true. And so for me to simply leave my kids orphaned, even for a couple seconds, orphaned and stranded, even though we have an agreement that either mom or dad would come and pick them up at the end of the school day, is going to be a massive letdown. Fear is going to behold their little hearts and they're going to assume, like I said, that they're gonna be shipped off to an orphanage somewhere. And I never ever want my kids to feel that way. I want them to know that they can count on my promise to be there when I said that I was going to be there. And that is really what this entire series is about, is that Christmas is about God's promises to his people and God following through so we are no longer orphans. Christmas is about God following through on his promises. 
That's what Christmas is about. And amid this season, it's so easy, especially this week, it is so easy to slip into like the stress of the season. I gotta buy one more gift. I have to make one more fruitcake that someone's eventually gonna throw away. Like I have to do all of these things, right? And, and if I can just do all of these things, I'll have a perfect Christmas season. And we get so stressed out and we get so burnt out and we do all the family things, all the family things. All the friends, we have the friends giving and we have the staff Christmas party we have to go. We have the wife's staff Christmas party we have to go. We have all of these things that we have to do and it all converges on one week and this one week is the week that we are supposed to stop and behold what God has done. God with us. And the week gets messed up. The season gets messed up because our focus is simply on the wrong thing. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's the stress of the season. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one over the, the last year. And so because of that, or even the, the illness of a loved one, that Christmas is just going to look different this year. And it's a hard thing. Maybe you're a new mom or a new dad, and you're like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and you're like, man, we got this little two-month-old baby here. He's going to celebrate Christmas for the first time. It's like, just give them a pacifier. Like, that's all they want. I don't know where it is that you fall on the spectrum, but my plea to you, my prayer for you, is to simply stop and behold that God is with us. And that's what we get to look at today in the book of Hosea. Now, in Hosea, uh, it's a book where we have a, a prophet, Hosea, uh, who is God's mouthpiece. That's any prophet would be God's mouthpiece to the world. And it's during the time of one of Israelites' worst kings, Jeroboam II. And beyond that, the, the Israeli kingdom is completely and totally in the midst of chaos. Assyrians have swept in. They level the entire kingdom at one point. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. Hosea told him, hey, all of this is going to happen. And that's the reign in which, or that's the time in which Hosea is the prophet. And the entire book is written of kind of poetry almost. It's, it's in a poetic fashion to describe his 25 years of teaching, of preaching, of admonition of God's mouthpiece at the time. So the book is, is split into three parts. And the most famous part of the book uh, is where he talks about his marriage to a woman named Gomer. One of the worst names in the Bible, Gomer. It's like Gomer, it's Gomer and Dorcas, all right? Those two really are at the top of the list, Gomer and Dorcas. So if you remember nothing else, two worst names in the Bible, Gomer and Dorcas, okay? Good. Let's keep moving though. So Gomer uh, cheats on him. We're going to simplify the story and is overall a pretty terrible wife. But God tells him to go to those that she has slept with and pay off her debts. That way, the two of them can be restored forever. This is what happens in chapters 1 through 3. And this, this whole thing is all prophetic kind of symbolism telling the story of the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel consistently cheats on God and God continuously comes back to rescue her. And so we see that parallel there. He explains that all of this will be taken care of by the Messiah King that we now know is Jesus. That's what, that's what Hosea is, is doing in this symbolism here that's offered. It's saying, hey, look, God's saying, Hosea, go take care of this. 
Go pay off the debts of your cheating wife so she can be restored to you forever. This parallels itself to the gospel of Christ, but we're going to keep moving on. It launches us into the second part of the book, which is really chapters 4 to 10, where his poetry describes the cause and effect of all of Israel's unfaithfulness. Long story short, Hosea tells the nation of Israel that the consequences of their actions are going to cause everything to come crashing down on their heads. And that's when the Assyrians are coming to wipe out Israel, like we talked about a second ago. So that's 4 through 10. And then in 12 through 14, the last section of the book, Hosea actually reminds Israel of all of the times that they had been unfaithful to God in the past and how none of this is new, and they don't change, and if they don't change, they will end up with the same results. Death, despair, and wandering. That's what it's going to end up with. But what about chapter 11? See, chapter 11 is all about Israel's hope for the future, where it displays God as a, a loving father who is, who is raising Israel as his son. But the son rebelled against the father, took advantage of the father's generosity. Think, think prodigal son here. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you can see a very distinct parallel between chapter 11 of Hosea and the prodigal son in those two stories. But God, in this instance, he's emotionally angry. God is upset at this point, much like a father would be if, if your kid turns your back on you. If my kid turned my, his back on me, I'd be frustrated. I'd be angry. But I'd also be completely and totally heartbroken, recognizing that if he just showed the glimmer of wanting to come back, if he just, anything that I can possibly do to get you to, to turn and look back at my face, to come home, anything you can do, anything I can do, tell me what it is. I'm heartbroken and I'm angry, but it's not so much that I would ever say, nope, go and do your worst. Go live however it is that you want to live. No, because that's not what loving dads do. Loving dads provide a path home. They're waiting anxiously for their son to come home, for their daughters to come home. And that's what God is revealing here in Hosea chapter 11. And that frustration goes away. That anger goes away. And the focus is now on exactly how God is going to remedy this situation. So all that to say, Hosea 11 verse 1 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Which makes sense in the context that we talked about, right? This verse makes sense in the context in which we talked about, because God is calling Israel. God is talking to the nation of Israel through Hosea. He's saying, hey, I'm going to call you out of Egypt. I'm going to call you out of this oppressive regime. But what does this have to do with the Christmas narrative? Great question. Thank you for asking it. Let's take a field trip to Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, flip open to New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. It picks up starting on verse 11. Before we get there, right before this, the Magi and the three wise men, not and the three, the three wise men have come to see Jesus. And so it picks up Matthew 2, verse 11. It says, on coming to the house, this is the Magi, 
They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to where? Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, they're talking about Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew's hearkening back to Hosea here. He's saying there was a prophecy in Hosea 11.1, and the fulfillment of that prophecy is God sending Jesus to Egypt, and then God, once Herod dies, calling Jesus back out of Egypt. And Matthew says the fulfillment of that prophecy. So last week, we talked at length regarding Jesus, the Son of God, essentially being born into a place that was nowhere. That God sent his son, and his son came to earth as nothing, born in a barn, in a town that no one cared about, that he was essentially, as far as the world was concerned, a no one from nowhere. But early on in his life, before that, or after that, rather, his mom and his dad have to leave the area because the king thinks Jesus is going to take his throne. But I want to dig a bit deeper here because In the beginning of the book of Matthew, just as the beginning of Hosea 11, we have the introduction of a messianic figure, a figure who's like a Messiah. We have the introduction of God's plan to redeem the world. In Hosea, it is Israel. In Matthew, it is Jesus. And the very fact that God has decided to put his son in this position at all should be shocking to us. For those of you who have been blessed with kids, that would be shocking to you. It's the impossible question of do I kill my son or do I save the masses? What's the option there? Where am I going to land? The Bible is clear that we are the ones who didn't hold up our end of the bargain. See, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we recognize that we have the fall of man. And the fall of man essentially means sin entered the world, and now every person after that has what we call a sin nature. And so that's why every single day when you're going throughout your day, you struggle with whatever it is that you struggle with. Anger, lust, pride, envy, you fill in the blank. But we all have a sin nature, and because of that sin, we regularly have not held up our end of the bargain. There is no way for us to be able to get to heaven apart from God doing something on our behalf. And so God's plan is continuously fleshed out in the Old Testament. That's why as we are looking at these prophecies, this is God saying, hey, this is going to happen. 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 I promise you this, and then it comes to fruition. I promise you this, and it comes to fruition. You ever wonder what was the point of having the Old Testament at all? 
Partially because it's framing the entire necessity of having a savior. The Old Testament says, hey, look, I'm going to give you a bunch of prophets who are telling you where you mess up. So that way you know how to get to heaven. And then they still mess up. And then they, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of judges and tell you where you're messing up. And then guess what? Israel still messes up, but they have no way to get to heaven. And I'm going to give you the law. So that way you know exactly what it is you're supposed to do and, and what you're not supposed to do. That's why we still mess up. I'm going to give you kings, and we still mess up. And then in the midst of all of these things happening, we have God just sprinkling little promises over and over and over again. Hey, I'm going to renew you because I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And that's why as we look back at Hebrew, or excuse me, Hosea 11.1, 1, it's one of those just little sprinkles saying, hey, I am going to do this for you because you can't get to me otherwise. You can't get to me otherwise. We are the gomers of the world. We're the gomers of the world. We are the unfaithful spouse to God. And we consistently, like a dog returns to its vomit, return to our sin, as Proverbs so eloquently puts it. And that's what we consistently do and consistently do and consistently do. And all the while, God is sprinkling in promises in the Old Testament. And so then, when we get to the birth narrative of Christ, God is like, look what I have done. I promised it to you. Here he is. Here's my son. God, see, he went on the offensive for us. God didn't sit back and wait for us to devise a plan and figure out a plan and allow us to find him, he went on the offensive. He called us out of our sin nature. He called us out of our oppression. He called us out of Egypt. And then he called his son out of heaven. And all of Israel was redeemed as all of humanity was redeemed by Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what God's mercy is like. Is exactly what God's mercy is. Christ would rather see us come to repentance than have us apart from him at all. Man, I bet the Old Testament just completely and totally broke God's heart. Because he was, I, all the time, I mean, making himself known all the time, all the time, here's the way, here's the way, here's the way. I mean, God delivers Israel from Egypt. And they couldn't even wait a couple weeks before they made another God to worship. I can bet his heart was broken in the same way as he looks down and he recognizes that, hey, our own sin nature, his heart breaks for us. And rather than see us apart from him forever, he provided a way for us. Second Peter 3, 9, it tells us this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God knew what it was he was doing when he sent his son to the world. When he sent his son to Egypt, and then when he called him back out again, God was sending his son to accomplish something he had set out hundreds of years before through the prophet Hosea. Luke 19 tells us, for the son of man came to seek, seek and save the lost. 
God had it in mind the entire time, all the way back to Hosea. He wasn't going to let Israel flounder and die. He was going to turn Israel into his eternal kingdom rather than simply a temporal one. And all the while, fast forward to us, is that we're sitting here toiling, trying to figure out how to build our temporal kingdom as big as we possibly can, rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to be a faithful citizen of the eternal one. And so while this is well and good for Israel, and frankly, can be a little bit confusing, what does this have to do with us? Well, here's here's the thing. The entire reason that we have Christmas at all is because of sin. That'll go over real well for dinner conversation, okay? Drop that in the middle of your Christmas Eve dinner. Hey, hey, you know why we have Christmas? Because you're a sinner. Aunt Martha, you know, get in your mean aunt's face or something like that. But the entire reason we have Christmas at all is because of sin. And I know that seems like a weird sentence, but it's true. We have Christmas because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans tells us that. And in his infinite wisdom, God decided that the only way to reconcile us to him was to send his son to rescue humanity. And because God knew this, all throughout the Old Testament, you see glimpses of Jesus over and over and over again. John Piper says you get to see Jesus in three ways in the Old Testament. Three ways. The first way you see it is Christ patterned. Christ patterned. So the way Christ acted, what he did, how he responded, and it's all over the Old Testament. It's incredibly Jesus-shaped, the entire Old Testament. The flood and the ark. The Passover, the Red Sea, the wilderness and the promised land, exile and return, war and peace, kingdom and kings, prophets, all of those things are Jesus-shaped. They are Christ-patterned in the Old Testament. And the next way, the next way we see it is, it is you see Christ promised in the Old Testament. And these are the prophecies of Christ, the very things that we are talking about here in the midst of this series. It was language like Messiah and King over and over again. And Israel was consistently looking forward to God redeeming their people. And the last way that we see Christ in the Old Testament is you see Christ present. There are tons of instances of the second member of the Trinity, who is Jesus, being present in the Old Testament as well. And the most popular probably being the fiery furnace when three men entered and as the king looked in there were four standing there see christ present there as well and god just put these things in there he just put these things in there so when it was time to call his son forth out of egypt it was easier for us to see and the 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 evidence would simply be overwhelming that people would look at the prophets of old, they would look at Isaiah, who people even today think the book of Isaiah was written after, after Christ came to earth, because there are so many prophecies in there that just speak to Jesus exactly. The fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Isaiah is mind-blowing. And God provided this evidence beforehand for us so we could see when he came, oh wait, this is the Messiah. This is the one who was promised. Look, they wrote him 700, 500, 1,000 years before Christ ever came on to the scene. So God is consistently calling out to his broken creation in the Old Testament and even today. 
And eventually he does so, so out of Egypt, so that baby could eventually come and challenge the religious establishment of the day only to get nailed to the cross and beat death three days later. That's why he came. That's why we do Christmas. Because of sin and God's refusal to let it fester. We do Christmas because God promised to deliver us from sin. That's why we do Christmas. And most of us know this. But if you think Christmas is an opportunity to, to simply slow down and, and take your foot off the gas regarding the things of heaven, regarding the reason for the season, to use the cliche, that it's okay for us to take the foot off the gas, you're simply and sadly mistaken. You see, Christmas is the beginning of the Easter story. Without Christmas, we don't get Easter. You know, I know, you know, Christians and, and stat people on staff uh, at churches and that sort of thing, they say, man, Christmas Eve and Easter, that's the Super Bowl for us, right? Like, we got to get everything right. And we do. We try hard to do as much as we possibly can to be as welcoming as we can and, you know, to preach the word and sing the songs and do all this stuff. But Christmas, as important as it is, this is just the beginning of the story. This is the beginning of God's promise fulfilled. This isn't the end. See, we get to, in four months, come and, and we have a donut wall that we put out. And we'll give you all donuts and it's weird. And you get to take some cute pictures and everybody's wearing pastel for some reason. And we do the Easter thing and that's the Super Bowl. That's the celebration. That's God's promises completely and totally fulfilled to his people to us who promised that he was going to reconcile himself to us. Christmas is the beginning of the Easter story and this news of Christ being born, called out of Egypt and eventually into a, into a 30 plus year ministry so he could save us for all eternity is far too important to let the busyness of the season weigh us down. And that's the hard part. See, now more than ever is when his name should be on our lips. And church, we're doing a good job of professing the name of Christ. I mean, our Oikos series, we saw tons of people. We, we haven't had a weekend where we didn't have a visitor since June or a new person here since June, which I think is phenomenal. It speaks to what you're doing in and around the community. But I also know we're doing a good job because recently I got a, uh, a letter a real letter. It's made of paper. In the mail. Snail mail. Someone actually delivered this. It's crazy. Um, and I got a letter in the mail from someone who has been attending our church for about a year. And I got their permission to share it uh, with the congregation. But uh, it was incredibly kind. And this is what it said. It said, uh, Peter and Sarah, as we wrap up 2019 and head into a new decade, I can't help but reflect on my journey of faith this year. I distinctly recall being unsatisfied with the church that we were previously attending, with my kids really only excited about the splattering of donuts available at the end of every service. It's still true here, by the way. Then one day, I saw a post from a military friend inviting her oikos to SOS, and then again to Kids Choir, and then again to Christmas service, which finally caught our attention. As they say, we took the leap of faith and started attending FBH soon afterwards. 
This was about the same time my husband was knee-deep in workups, the excruciating training leading up to deployment, and I knew that I would need to anchor myself somewhere really good, and by divine intervention, we found that place. That next spring, my husband recognized Peter at baseball signups, and when I emailed asking him what we might suggest as Bible study between myself and my husband during deployment, I also mentioned that our kids might end up playing each other in baseball. The next day, we showed up to our first practice, and there was Owen on Drake's team. The day after that, I ran into Peter at Chipotle, which is one of the reasons that I need to run more. Uh, <laughs> ran into Peter at Chipotle while he was eating lunch with Kyle. Okay, God, I'm listening. She says, I've been a regular church attender off and on my whole life, starting in the Catholic Church, go Irish. It says that. That's not my joke. It's hers. And eventually having my born-again moment in high school. I never did much outside of Sunday service, though, and really struggled with jumping in. With the exception of the Lord's Prayer, I'm absolutely terrified of publicly praying. That's my deep, dark secret. I don't know if I was supposed to read that. That's okay. This is her greatest fear, her deep, dark secret. When small groups were announced last summer, it caught my attention, but I was worried I couldn't handle any more on my plate. That fall, we got our soccer schedule, and it just so happens that Wednesday was the only night with no commitments. Okay, God, I'm listening. I ran into Sarah at a Saturday morning soccer game, and she invited me to your small group, and it really gave me the nudge that I needed. I finally signed up for a Wednesday night dinner, shuffled my kids to their respective classrooms, and just as I started doubting if I was doing the right thing because I had no idea what I was doing next, in walked Sarah to drop off Noah and said, hey, are you coming? So off I followed you both to an all too familiar house, which is another story. And as it turns out, I wasn't asked to say a prayer out loud, but was instead challenged to dig deeper in the Bible and grow my faith in God. I could not anticipate the deployment extension that was to come, but there FBH stood, ready to pick up the pieces with an offer to bless our families on parents' day out and later with generous Christmas gifts. And in one other, otherwise terrible event, God worked through that moment to reach hundreds of other families well beyond what I considered my own oikos. I've since had people approach me saying they were looking for a home church, indicating interest in attending, and at least one has already come. It's truly amazing what can be done if you just trust God and lead the way. I'm incredibly grateful to have met you both this year, and I thank you, your staff, and volunteers for the support you've extended to my family and to all the deployed families of NAS Lemoore. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you in 2020, maybe on the baseball field, but certainly in that small group. And I'll have my plus one with me this time around. God bless. So I read that not to toot our own horn. Also, that's a phrase I never thought I'd say on this stage. <laughs> but because that, that email or that letter, sorry, it's supposed to be an email, that letter was incredibly kind, but that letter started with one person recognizing the hurt and brokenness in her friend. Her name was Kim Tritz. And she simply invited her because she recognized that we are broken and we are in need of a savior, a savior that God promised to us in the Old Testament, a savior that God brought to us in the New Testament and a savior that now we can eagerly anticipate in the future. That's all she did. 
was simply invite this person because she recognized the brokenness of humanity and how this story that we get an opportunity to tell, this ridiculous jacket even that I'm wearing, that we get to celebrate a season, that we get to have fun with friends and family, that we get to do all of these things, this season is way more important than we assume. This season is way more important than we give it credit for. This is God's promise, the beginning of God's promise being fulfilled in our lives. And there are far too many people in Kings County and beyond who don't yet know about it or more difficult, assume they know about it, but are actually still lost. You have a unique opportunity over the course of this next week to sit down and have conversations with people that you don't regularly have conversations with. Family, Aunt Martha, friends, people you haven't seen in a long time, but people that you care deeply about. You may not like all of them, but you certainly will love all of them, as my mom said. And I would venture to say that it is incredibly unloving to not talk to them about what God has done in your life. It's incredibly unloving to not share with them the reason that we do church, the reason that Christmas exists, the reason that our kids get weeks off, so many weeks off. But the reason for all of those things, I would venture to say it's far more unloving to not share those things than it is to simply not be awkward, to simply not rock the boat because of niceties, because we don't talk about God and politics. Still don't talk about politics. Nobody needs that in their life. But the opportunity to sit and look across the table from someone you love and not condemn them, not judge them, but simply start by asking them, hey, do you have a faith? Or tell me about your faith. And as they answer that question and fill in the blanks for you, take the opportunity to say, hey, let me tell you about mine and what Christ has done in my life. I'm not saying you have to bring somebody to the altar right there or anything like that. But if those that you love most do not yet know that you have placed your faith in a God of promises, a God who says yes to promises, and I'd venture to say that you need to continue to step out in faith more and more and more. Simply speaking, one invitation can change a life. One invitation from this friend of hers changed her life. And not because she just goes to our church now, but her social circle is different. That one invitation from this lady in my small group spurred on hundreds of people out at the base being blessed because one person invited her. One person. Church, now is not simply the time for gingerbread houses and ugly jackets. It's an opportunity for you to push the gas pedal down and encourage those people in your oikos and your friends and your family into faith. That's the reason that we have Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I'm uh, thankful for you, and I'm thankful just reading the Old Testament and seeing you just present all over the place. That you promised us that you were going to send your son, and you promised it because we are broken 
people that we couldn't get back to you otherwise. And so you made a paper trail for us to be able to follow. Say, hey, when my son comes, these things are gonna be accomplished. God, thank you for accomplishing those things. And Father, we wait eagerly for the other promises not yet fulfilled. But God, in the meantime, before those promises are fulfilled, before your son comes back, now the last thing that I would want to do is for your son to come back and be sitting on my hands and not doing the business of your son, not doing your business, not doing the things that I was supposed to be doing that you called me to do when I entered into this covenant relationship with you. Simply speaking, to make disciples of all nations. And oftentimes those nations begin under our roof or next door or in the cubicle next to us. God, I pray we would be about your business because this message is far too important to not talk about it. This message is far too important for us to be ashamed about it. And we recognize that one invitation can change a life. God, I pray that you would make this congregation bold, whether in their homes or someone else's, in their cars, wherever it may be, make them bold to have meaningful, difficult conversations, awkward conversations about faith that could simply change a life. And if you're with us today and you're, you're, you've never heard this before, you've been sitting on the sidelines and saying, you know what, no, I'm gonna come to church because that's what I'm supposed to do when my mom and dad go to church, I go with them or whatever it may be. If that's you, I just with head still bowed and eyes still closed, we close every service by saying the ABCs, by praying the ABCs. And the first is saying, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit that, God. That I mess up all the time, that, that I'm completely and totally broken, that there is no way, I recognize there's no way to get to, to you on my own volition. I admit that, Father, but B, I believe that you sent your son. I believe at Christmas time, the celebration of you sending your son, that he didn't just come and stay a baby, but that he grew up, Father, and became a man and hung on a cross for my sake. He bore the burden of my sin so I can be reconciled to you forever. and see that I would choose to follow you, which is the difficult step. It's easy to say we believe something. It's difficult to do something about it. And so God, I just pray that we would choose to follow you today and every day after that. And not just for those of us in here who just said yes today for the first time, but for every single one of us, that part of choosing to follow you, God, is proclaiming your name. And simply entering into conversations with people about faith, things that we say we care most about. God, make us bold and allow us to have those conversations. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.